Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm doing something today I rarely do, which is having, uh, unless guys are the lead singer and guitarist in a rock band, uh, I don't ever have two guests at the same time. I guess we're two comedians who make each other cry, and I'm trying to make the piece. But I, I read this book that uh, Armin Katayan and Jeff Benedict wrote about Tiger Woods, and um, my, my engagement with the book was so heavy and, and intense, my reaction to it, that uh, I wanted to I have them on, plus uh, Armin, you know, I'm a, I've been a big admirer of yours for a very long time. Well, I kind of like you too right now. Thanks, brother. <laughs> um, well, we'll see how it goes yeah. by the end of our conversation. So uh, I, I do want to start, I, you know, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast at all, but it's, it's rarely just about sort of like a book or a movie. I'm very interested in process uh, and in how and why people do what they do. And I think in, in particular, this book, which is filtered through this joint prism, uh, I think it's worth understanding what that prism is. Jeff, could, could you talk a little bit about how, you, like, because your book deals so much with a prodigy and with the early life of someone who became a top professional, could you just talk a little bit about, uh, biographically about yourself, about how you came to be uh, a writer who's, who's doing this? Sure. Uh, Reader's Digest version is I, I'm a lawyer. I went to law school to be a lawyer, to be a prosecutor. And in my first year of law school, I signed my first publishing deal, which was an expose about the NFL, and I was off to the races. Uh, been writing now for 20-plus years. Um, and getting to Tiger Woods, the path was basically a few years back, I started doing more biographies, using the tools that investigative journalists use to do investigative books, but applying them to biographies. And Tiger was the third one in a row for me. Um, and I was coming at it from the perspective of someone who doesn't, know much about golf because I've never played the game. I don't belong to a country club. I've never swung a club. And uh, so I, I was less interested in the golf than I was in the man and how he was built and his boyhood because I thought that that was probably, there's probably a lot of gold there that to me would be worth trying to showcase, you know, how this guy got to be great. Yeah. What, let's just go a little deeper into your past than Armin. We're going to go to you. Like what kind of childhood did you have? Because kind of childhood did I have, yeah. Like where'd you, where'd you grow up? And what, what, what was this sort of, um, because a lot of the book talks about Tiger yeah. and his particular situation. Yeah. So, and, and you know, the three of us sitting here, basically three white guys in our fifties yep. Yep. and you're writing about a multiracial person who sure. came up in a very different way. And, and that's one of the things that I, I'm, I have deep questions about because sure. I think about it when I write about, you know, my writer's room is um, multicultural most of the time, and I'm, yeah. I'm interested in that. So yeah, what was your childhood like? What, what set you up to want to be a writer? Uh, nothing. Uh, my childhood was poor. Uh, my mom had me when she was a teenager. My dad left when I was 11 months old. Um, we were in a part of Connecticut that was, I was the only white kid in my kindergarten class. Um, it was a frightening situation for me. Um, it was intimidating. I was a shy kid. I didn't talk. Now much. we're going to have to fact check your kindergarten story, uh, by the way, because <laughs> no, that's, yeah, you know, in yeah, the book, it's, um, the, opposite it's the opposite story. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I didn't stay there long, but my mom moved me to a more white community for first grade. And, and I went through the rest of grammar school that way. But the point is, I think for me, I, I grew up with, with really without a father figure until later in my childhood, I was raised by, you know, uncles and grandfathers and stuff, but in a blue collar town. And looking back, I mean, I think some of the best preparation for me for being a writer was not that I planned to be one, but that I, I did a lot of things uh, in my early years that most writers probably don't do. Like one of my first jobs was I managed a homeless shelter in one of the urban areas in Connecticut. 
one of the best jobs I ever had. Um, I was a custodian. I cleaned toilets for a year and a half the year I got married. Um, I worked on a construction crew. I did all those things before I even thought about writing. And did you think you had a particular ability to notice things or to uh, so, uh, watch things? Did you have a writerly eye? Would you tell I mean, stories? I totally curious about people all the time. And um, I did write for my school paper in high school. They picked me to write for sports because I was a jock who wasn't good enough to start. So they said, could you write the football stories? So many of us, yeah. Uh, and my first story, though, was John Lennon's death. I mean, I was supposed to write football and I wrote that. Um, I don't know. I've always been curious about people and uh, and interesting situations. And so did some of that bleed into this? For sure. I mean, it had, I think Armin and I both, if you look at our pasts um, and where we've been in life, I, I think I can see things from both of us that bleed into how we looked at Tiger Woods' life. Were you ever recognized as a, a young person for being like a bright person? Would someone have thought when you were young were you curious? Uh, were curious, you raising yes. your hand in class? Curious, you... yes, but not bright. And, and, and just to revisit the thing when you said you were, because you said it quick and I made a joke about the tiger thing, but um, when uh, you were a kid, you said you, were, you, were, you felt scared by being the only white kid. Was that because of the way your mom talked to you about that? Was it because no. you were mistreated? What, well, what, what, we, we lived in a triple-decker on a street called Crystal Avenue in New London. You can look it up. It's, it's the poor part of town. And there was a another single mom who lived above us and she had a son same age as me and so they were african-american we were white and my mom and his mom were really close and he used to pick on me all the time he was bigger stronger much more athletic and that was intimidating for me i never fought back because i knew that i there was nothing i could do so when i say i was shy in school it was just that i was I was a sh I mean, even when she moved me to uh, a different community, I still didn't speak much because I was just shy. That changed. I mean, I'm not a shy guy now, but um, when I was a little kid, I was. How do you think that shaped, though, your like opinions on race and particularly that story, which we'll get to? I mean, I think did just, you go through a, an, an effort in your life then to sort of like look at that? Well, actually, when we got to the part about Tiger's kindergarten where he stutters and doesn't speak in class. I actually related to that big time because I didn't have a stutter, like I didn't have a speech impediment, but I could certainly relate to feeling like the kid who was different than everyone else, uh, the kid who looked different, the kid who was afraid to speak, and the kid who was a little weird because I didn't have any friends. That part I could relate to. And a lot of this book, we were trying our best to relate in places and pockets of his life, like to get in his shoes as best we could. And for me, that part was a little easier. And Armin, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, you're uh, one of the most Im certainly important people to tell stories about sports in, in the country, and you're on 60 Minutes, not just 60 Minutes Sports. I mean, you're, uh, where, how did this start for you? Where'd you, where'd you grow up, and what was your childhood Well, like? I was born in Detroit, Michigan, um, 1953, so I'm a, um, a product of Motown and that music and Bob Seger, and, and um, I've always been, uh, kind of had, two parts of my life. Um, one, I love to read. I was always a reader uh, from a very early age. I think I read the most books in eighth grade for any boy at East Hills Junior High School in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. So we, we moved from Detroit to Bloomfield Hills, which is an upper middle class, um, even though I think we were probably lower upper middle class in, in that area. Um, yeah, I've but, been to that. that I, yeah. I have friends who grew up there. I know what that's yeah, like. Yeah, it's a nice yeah. life. And, uh, but I what was did your always, parents do? 
My dad was a, um, started out working um, as a supervisor. He was with the IRS and became a supervisor. Um, and then at the age of 40, um, became a CPA, took the CPA exam and passed it um, miraculously. I mean, in terms of, that, not that he wasn't super smart, but you know, that's a tough exam to pass. And he passed it in, 40 years in, two, old in two sittings. To decide to do that's crazy, so, yeah. Um, my work ethic came um, in large part from my father. Uh, my mom was pretty much a homemaker. Uh, I'm the middle of three children, uh, two very successful. Um, my brother is one of the top exercise physiologists in the country. My sister was a, an award-winning multicultural musical teacher in, in uh, Michigan. Um, but when I fell in love with reading, I was also, you know, truth be told, I was a very good athlete, um, very good baseball player, and uh, was the most valuable player in my high school baseball conference. I went to Central Michigan as a baseball player, and then San Diego State. I played at both of those schools, but I was profoundly influenced. Um, and I literally, as Jeff was saying, um, I actually played on the football field, and my introduction to writing first was to write a uh, article for the school newspaper about getting beat 42 to nothing um, the first time out and giving up. And I was a cornerback on the team, and we gave up seven passes for touchdowns in that. So actually, I think it was 49 nothing. Um, so it was an interesting beginning, and, and um, I was profoundly influenced by uh, David Halberstam, Best and the Brightest. It was a book that changed my life, the reporting in that book. And then I was lucky enough to have some incredibly inspiring music teachers, or excuse me, uh, writing teachers. And, um, and then I just kind of that same track. I played baseball in college. I wrote for the campus newspaper. But I started out... Um, much like a lot of people in this business that don't start out this way. I started at a weekly newspaper in San Diego, California. Um, the Life News, we called it the Death News in those days. You know? Yeah, sure. Uh, but I got a big break. I got a job at a Suburban Daily um, in Escondido, California, where I worked very hard for two years, and then I caught a bigger break. Um, I got hired by Sports Illustrated in 1982 at the age of 29, to make the grand total of $27,000 a year living still in New York still an incredible, to, in incredible that, break. Was Tim Layden there then? Or? Tim Layden wasn't there, but it was the, it was the glory days. Gary Smith. You know, Gary guys. Smith, Frank DeFord, William Oscar Johnson, Alex Wolf. I mean, it was a who's who, um, murderous row, really, of just f phenomenal writers and storytellers. And um, I became just, I think, by sheer will, and, and some pretty damn good reporting chops. Uh, the magazine's chief investigative reporter, and I had a pretty good run there. And then I got another break. Um, I went to the Olympics in 88 with Mike Weissman to cover the Olympics in Seoul and caught the eye of Rune Arledge. Um, I was hired at ABC News, uh, having virtually no television experience whatsoever to become a network television correspondent to focus primarily on the world of sports, but issues in the world of sports, yeah. the L's as I call them, financial, social, racial, cultural, you name it. And um, it was a tremendous uh, experience there. And then I went to CBS Sports and Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. Um, and then from there, uh, in a big switch, I was hired by uh, my boss in CBS Sports, Sean McManus, who was also the president of News, in 2006 to become the chief investigative correspondent for CBS News, and that's a big leap across yeah, the bridge. of course. But, as you well know, storytelling is storytelling, and if you have the chops in terms of reporting and writing and interviewing, 
you're in a pretty good it's path. fascinating I mean it's a path your path is one that's like almost doesn't exist anymore it, I don't think it does exist Dick Schapp was a role model for me as well and Dick was really the first one to but cross that the journal river. but even just that daily paper oh yeah journalism thing it's so much more it yeah. was difficult when you did almost it's always almost impossible to end up as a top network correspondent from there but that path even that was a grooved path in the way that golf still does sort of work like that yeah um Golf's one of those places where if you achieve at a certain level, there's this leap to the next level and there still are these organizations that allow you. Yeah, and I think if you, you know, I outworked a lot of people and then so is Jeff. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that we mesh so well is I, I've never worried for a second about his work ethic and more importantly about his integrity or his, uh, his credibility when it comes to interviews or what's important and we made a lot of those decisions in this book in terms of what stayed in what went out um how we would approach people particularly after they had turned us down two or three sure. times um there's one time i went to dina gravel who was i went to her house in california um to plead our case to try to get the letters to, well no i mean i just was looking for an opportunity to sit with her and talk to her about what the book was Tell going everyone to be who about. She, who she, she was Tiger's first true love. And there's a great, we knew there was a great story there. I couldn't, couldn't really close the deal right. um, in terms of getting her to commit. Did you sit with her family too? Or I, they... I got to the front porch with her and she said, I'll call you and I promise I'll talk to you. And I, she didn't call. So this one over here, I've said, Jeff, you're really good in some of these situations when it comes to talking to women. And um, he's got a gift. I think I have a gift. His, he's got a little different um, approach. And Jeff was able to get Dina um, to really open up about her relationship with Tiger. And it's one of the most, I think, uh, beautiful parts of the book because you really see the, the love blossom, how they meet, how they grow up, how the love blossoms. And then, you know, there's this heartbreaking breakup in it. Uh, that's a lot of people that have read the book have just pointed to time and time again. Yes, um, I have questions about this. Uh, I read the book super closely, so uh, now there's a I, shock. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree that that part of the book is like one of the most affecting parts. But I'll, I'll just—I mean, I, I want to ask about process one second before diving back into this that part of the book. But I'll, I'll come right to it. Do you guys um, rewrite each other? as it goes so one of you will write one chapter first or are you always going first and Armin's rewriting and then you're we, going we've done back two books forth? together when we did the system that's yeah. exactly how we did it we literally split it down the middle in terms of content and he wrote half the chapters and then I edited his and then I wrote half and he edited mine and then the editor put polish on in this one it was different we knew we couldn't do that with a biography because you'd, you'd be able to tell and so I would write a chapter send it to him He'd work on it and send it back to me. And that's how we went the whole way. It was sort of like a steam. And so even if you did the research, you would send the research. No, actually what happened was is I would write long narratives like I was writing a book. Yeah. And and I would start, let's say, with Earl's early days in the military. And I would write 4,000, 3,000 words and send it to Jeff. And it was almost like we were in opposite. You know, we were in other, we were separated. And even though we were an hour away from each other, um, I was doing all my own reporting, he was doing his reporting, and I knew he had files and I had files that had different information. So I didn't try to guess what he had. Yeah. I wrote what I knew based on what I had done. Yes. So I had a draft, a pretty polished draft, 
um, in many ways, and then I would send it to Jeff, he would add in what he had, ship it back to me, yes. I would play with it, ship it back to him. And you were doing the same thing on your this, side. This was, to be honest with you, to me was much harder than what we did last time and much less joyous <laughs> as writers. Yeah. What we did in the system, I don't want to say it was easy because that wouldn't be, an it wasn't easy, but it was much easier from a process approach. It was much more clean cut and it, and it was easier for us to, when I say sad of each other's way, what I mean is we had this whole territory. He had Michigan and Ohio State and I sure. had the, it was really easy to go where we were and say, hey, I'll talk to you in a couple months yeah. and we check in at night. We couldn't do that here and that this was, like I would not want to do this again with anyone, and I I've never done it with anyone but him. I wouldn't even want to do it again with him because it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not co-writing no, long prose is really difficult. Oh my God. Dave fun. and I, who obviously have written together for twenty-two years almost, we we've only written I think in that time two prose pieces together. Um, one was a remembrance of someone for I guess ESPN, uh, the guy we based a character around was on. And another was also from the very, one was in the very early days, writing movies together, screenplays together, TV shows, very, uh, we understand how to do that yeah. by splitting the scenes down the middle and exactly, writing each other. The long prose is really, really challenging. I and understand he that. he did it where he would send me things in, and really take off in directions which I was but, but, completely but, unaware of. But also of. in the system, and um, I don't remember that book very well. Uh, I'm not sure that I read it or I read just excerpts from it. Um, but you had a thesis to prosecute that was a clear thesis. Yes. Um, and in fact, it was a thesis that even before you started the research, you knew you were right and you were just going to go now back it up and say it in different ways and yes. sort of, right? So, but here, did you have a thesis cause that, that you were prosecuting and then having to change as you were going? I don't think, I don't think so. I mean, what? Look, we could answer that differently. Yeah, Probably two different people. Answer it differently. I, I would say no for me because I came into this. I've used the term agnostic towards Tiger Woods. I, I'm not a golf fan. I don't follow the sport, so I'm interested in Tiger Woods for a lot of reasons. But it's not like I came into it loving him or not liking him. I, I didn't really. I was just fascinated by his fame, his level of fame, and his level of greatness was very intriguing to me. Extremely curious about it, but I didn't have like this is what we're going to find. I knew the but things... What about that, your sense of morality? I mean, I know you're a religious person and I know family and religious... Sure. Religious structure and family structure is like a cornerstone of who you are as a human being yeah. Jeff, from the research I've yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not sure that I buy that you didn't have a take. Well, it's true. Or, because, so how did, but how, did that, how did that affect... Right, I would look at Tiger's... Um, clearly, a lot of the behavior, I think, is aberrant. Yeah. Um, the, uh, particularly once he committed to having a family, I'm, I don't like the way he behaved in certain ways. But I don't have like a general moral structure that would say that definitionally having a lot of um, random sex with people before you're in a committed relationship is wrong. Well, there's one you thing do I, though. I, but I think here's so. The, I wonder how that. I'm no, just I, as a writer. Armin knows me better better than most people, and yeah. we're not of the we're not. Armin and I don't go to the same church or anything like that. And the thing is. I have a hardline rule as a professional about journalism, which is journalism, journalists should not be judges. And a lot of times, I think it's hard, but a lot of journalists bring their personal judgments to the table when they go to work. I, for stuff like this, like it's not hard for me to, to not do that. I don't judge people that I write about. And the fact that he'd had all these extramarital relations to me, Armin will tell you, 
I was never focused on that because I didn't think there was a lot of new ground there. And I also thought, I can't tell you much about that that you don't already know. What I wanted to do was focus. I, Armin said I was the one who was interviewing all the women. I can honestly tell you there's only one woman that I approached who had an extramarital affair with Tiger Woods. I purposely went after women who had healthy relationships with him, whether it was Dina Gravel, whether it was Alicia, uh, whether it was Omira, whether it was his, his first friend that was more like a sister than a girlfriend, because I thought that's ground where there's a lot we can learn. I, I was not distracted by what some people would but, call immorality. But the, so what about, did you go in with a thesis? Because then I do think the book, no, it I think, does I think, judge him. Well, here's, here's the I thing. believe the book there's judges a, him harshly. A, well, I, I would argue that that his behavior, <laughs> as we outlined it in the book, um, is open for discussion and judgment. But here's the thing. It, you're talking about journalistic rules. I have a journalistic rule in terms of going into people's private lives. If you make your private life public in the way that Tiger Woods did, when you run into a fire hydrant at 2 o'clock in the morning on November 27, 2009, you have flipped the switch. You have become... Um, you have, be, you have taken your private life and made it public. And now that doesn't mean you have to take it in terms of the way that the National Enquirer did it or the New York Post did it, 21 straight days, a record for the, for, uh, the newspaper. So, but you're now in the public maw to a certain degree. I, I like to look at things, what fascinated me about Tiger was, and his life was, I knew the miles, mile posts. You know, you knew he was a, a, a child a star. You knew he was breaking ground as a golfer. You knew the 97 Masters. You knew the run. You knew the epic fall from grace. You knew the return. You knew that there was a reckoning. But what we did, what I think was marvelous as far as a storyteller is concerned, we made this massive timeline that was at 70,000 words, 120 pages. And we filled in all of those areas between those markers. So as you were looking at the arc of Tiger's life, this one could argue Shakespearean arc, what we discovered there was a lot of other stuff going on in this guy's life during those, between those markers. And that's where the book got rich because we found people who intersected in Tiger's life at times when he was, whether it was in high school or whether it was at Stanford or whether it was um, uh, Peggy Lewis when, at the house at the Masters. Those people enriched the book in ways that no one had ever done with Tiger's life. And also because Tiger had spent so much effort protecting his privacy uh, with non-disclosure agreements and everything else, we were, we were, I thought, extraordinarily careful, extraordinarily careful. And we dialed back on the sex. We dialed back on the adultery. We dialed back on some of the more um, uh, less gracious moments. And, and, I, and we were hard on him in some places. But if you talk to anybody that was around Tiger during those periods of his life, he was not a very nice person to be around. He didn't treat people fairly. He didn't treat them with respect or appreciation for what they were doing. I mean, if you're going to do a biography, do a biography. Where did you think the book judged him? Uh, the stuff with the women. I felt like the thing in the story in Vegas, the young girl, uh, the neighbor. 
I thought there were there were spots where you guys went into a level of prurient detail about what the actual sex was like that felt to me violative in a way that, and I'm someone who obviously, if you know my work, I'll go deep into this stuff in a fictional construct. But for me, it was, especially because you didn't have Tiger, I felt it was an, a notch, I felt it was unfair to Tiger. I, I felt like you don't have Tiger's versions of that. I also felt it, it, it verged on um, engaging, not in stereotypes, but engaging in this idea of this young multiracial guy with these white women that I just wasn't comfortable with. Well, we didn't it. even, I never saw it through the black and white prism. I saw it through what's it like to have extreme fame and fortune at a very young age and have been raised the way that Tiger was raised. Well, yes, I mean, listen, I think the part you did, uh, I, for me, again, I loved the book. I read it in, you know, I read it in a night and a half and um, I memorized it basically. But but I did, I, I loved when you would describe uh, the Earl's predilections and how they affected Tiger. Right. Because I felt there was a tremendous amount of empathy in the writing and for this kid. But also, Brian, you've got him in Vegas, and to, to, to avoid what he was doing in Vegas as a secret life would be to avoid a very important part of his life. And as he is, if you look at, and as we did, if you start with the crash in November of 2009 and you backtrack and you do it in slow motion, what we were trying to do was to take you in a ride off the cliff and as he's treating women in a more degrading fashion in 2009 as he moves into the world of um kind of pay for play uh with michelle braun and and what was happening when he would call up and want girls for sex when he was involved with women in vegas where trust me we tamed it down because there were stories out there that were at the far end of, of a sexual spectrum that we purposely, we would talk about them, and at certain points in time, they were in the book, fair to say, and then they were out of the book as we were dialing it back because we didn't want to be um, accused of exactly what you have seen, um, which is a certain judgment or a certain purient interest. But if you look at somebody like that at the age of 24, or 25 when you're making a hundred million dollars a year what's that like what's at your beck and call well pretty much everything and that we if we hadn't gone there i felt there would have been a gap that wouldn't have been fair to the reader yeah but i experience. guess my question is why is it because I, I guess i'm not sure i agree with your statement that when you put it in the public life like i'm tiger had an accident he and his wife had a marital spat I agree. Years later, no, post divorce, but the police were called. Post divorce, when um, when he took the pills and his back got messed up and he was on Ativan, you know, Ativan and Valium and um, Vicodin right. and all that stuff. I, I that to me was like, okay, this Why guy's trying okay? to make a comeback. Why is that okay? Because he'd made public statements to the contrary at that but, time. But I he guess. also did about this. Yeah, he I made mean, even more statements about this. Yeah, well, depict no. For I me, mean, saying he was adulterous totally inbounds. Saying he was adulterous with a lot of people. For me, the literal sexual details of women describing and relying on them to just tell their nights that were um, 
they'd all consented to. They, consent's not a question in the book. Not a question at no. all. Consent's no. not a question. In fact, they clearly went after, many of them went after him, right? And, um, no different than we've all heard the story of the famous professional athlete who would play cards in a room and um, have people come up to the next room and be, he would leave right. and go in the other room. You guys know what I'm talking right. about. Yeah. Uh, uh, understanding that that behavior happens and then the level of... I was trying, what's the purpose? What's the point as writers? Well, I think in doing I, that, in 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 um, for me, it had it, it had the effect of adding a dose of humiliation to Tiger that the rest of the book doesn't. You're so sensitive about what it was like to be a child in with a father like that, mm-hmm. and that was so powerful to me. And it exp- and I think it so tells you why Tiger became fucked up, according to the book. I don't know. I just felt. Look, I think you raise an interesting question, and, and these aren't ones that we took lightly in trying to figure out how to do this. Um, so, before I answer your question, I'll just say that the flip side of this is as we go around and speak, which we've done a lot of, it's interesting how many times I have been harangued in public settings because we were. As, as many critics will say to us in book events, we were too compassionate, too empathetic. We skated around stuff with, with him because we, the way we dealt with the adultery and stuff like that. In other words, what I'm saying to you is I think very smart people and very sensitive people have very different views about that part of his life and how it should or shouldn't be treated on the page. I think no matter what we, how we did it, there would have been people who would have said, this was not fair or this was not, you could have done this more truthfully or more whatever. And so you're on the other side of that equation. And I think for me, looking at this is that throughout this thing, we were trying to be true. We were trying to be true to him and we were trying to be true to his life experience. We were never trying to be sensational. And I think when you talk about his childhood and how that part of of the book hit you and how it resonated, the thing is, I think that there's a, there's a place later in his life that connects to that. And one of the things we were trying to do there is, is when we're talking about sex addiction and trying to explain how it works and what it is, Yes, I, I think that the couple of places where we went into the detail that you're referring to, that is directly tied to what, what sex addiction is. It's not pleasurable. It's pain relief. It's not pleasure. Right. And yes. we weren't trying to show that as this is not pleasure, it's not fun. This is not athletes running around having a great time. This was something very different than that. It was a pathology. Yeah, You're trying and, to show it's a pathology. Right. And that's and what we were trying to do. And you can't have his activities be null and void or be so so muted to the point where you put him in the gratitude program and the gentle path program that you don't understand why he's there. He was there because he was you know, he was a um, he was a man that was in a lot of pain, and the sex became a form of pain relief for him, much like drugs or alcohol or gambling or whatever. I spent a lot of time, almost to the point where my wife was wondering why I was seeing certain sex addiction experts in New York for three and four hours at a time. And, but I learned a lot. And Monica Meyer, who's, who's now out at the Meadows, who was a, is a stepchild, so to speak, brainchild of Patrick Carnes, for me, that was one of the most fascinating parts of the book. Totally. And because I wanted to understand sex addiction because it's so purient and just, and it's, and it's not even believed by a lot of people. And that moment 
It's minimized. It's minimized. People whiff oh, it off like just oh, I have someone on. in my writer's room who who's, was for years a sex edition uh, therapist, a psychologist, and she's an, also a novelist, and then she became a, a TV writer. So without she never tells um, stories about her exact patients, but I understand the pathology, and you guys nailed the pathology And for I think sure. we nailed the moment where on Accountability Tuesday, which came up, you know, kind of out of the blue, and when someone said to me, and I actually talked to somebody who had gone into that program, interviewed this certain person, and came out two weeks before Tiger went in. So they knew the Gentle Path Gratitude program like the back of their hand. And when that person said, well, let me tell you about Accountability Tuesday when you have to sit across from your wife. Yes, and, and you said they've changed the way they do they, it now. Because yeah, it's yeah. so devastating. You say that in the book, yeah. It's so devastating. And I, I, I wrote that part of it where I'm literally thinking about, I've been married to the same woman for 38 years that's not a conversation I'd ever want to have, and certainly not with 120 women, right. where you bear your soul. And, that's, and then you couple that with the public humiliation that he suffered, and we talk about that in terms of, was that Tiger, what Tiger wanted, or was that what Mark Steinberg wanted, and what his commercial interests wanted? And that's complicated. If you've ever had a professional shave from the barbershop, you know how it can change, not only how you look, but also how you feel. The baby smooth skin, the confidence you feel knowing you look great. Now you can get the same barbershop feeling at home with the one blade razor. They sent me this. I said I wouldn't do this unless they'd send me the, the razor, which is a good scam to get a razor. Uh, get yourself a podcast and then make it so that you tell commercials so that then they have to send you the item. But it's excellent. You can feel it just when you pick it up in your hand. Um, and it reminds it, it's, it's great because it's traditional, but it's also totally brand new. This thing has been uh, obsessively engineered to be the optimal tool for performance shaving, from the perfect pivot and weight to the finest materials such as ultra high grade German stainless steel. This is an heirloom quality razor you can pass down for generations. Each one's hand assembled, serial numbered, and every one blade is backed by a 60 day money back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. So if your family has been asking what you want for Father's Day, give them this URL. OneBladeShave.com slash moment. Just for Father's Day, you'll receive a free Yeti Rambler with all razor purchases. Visit OneBladeShave.com slash moment. A great thing the book does, as I, as I mentioned, is is gives you the sense, um, I guess it's the story you hear about Agassiz's father, but even more so here, where you have uh, this father who, you know, it's hard to tell whose dream it was, Tiger's dream right. or Earl's dream. Yeah. Right, right. And and even dream is such a light sounding word, right? Because it was really an obsession. Could be a it revenge. Was, I had the, yeah. that word came to my mind well, more than a few times with with Earl. Yeah, sure, a absolutely. Um, and you know, you do depict the moment when Tiger was asked to to leave the driving range at that golf course, so that we understand this sort of thing, the need for this revenge or this obsessions there. But but it seemed to me that, and I wonder how the two of you guys land on this. Um, Part of what the book seems to be saying to me is like, it wasn't this kid's fault that this is who beca he became. And I think this might tie into why that part of the book bothers me. If it's not his fault, then to me, perhaps he doesn't deserve to have all the dirty laundry spilled out. Well, I, you know, you know this. Well, I think, I think, go ahead, Jeff, but I think well, just quickly, I think at some point in time, it is his fault. You know, you can't, you can't be 30 years old and blame your parents for everything. I don't know. You can't, even with all that well, stuff. You can we can't. If you want to. We can't because we don't have, we have, the things that were thrust upon him weren't thrust upon us. 
that level of attention, success. You're infantilized when you're that famous, that young. Almost nobody comes through that. Was it Danny Sugarman, Jim Morrison book, No One Here Gets Out Alive? Like, no, no one here gets out alive, right? Almost nobody in that particular situation, except maybe Jordan, who pay, paid his own price, right? Mm -hmm. in, a, in a different way, um, comes out alive. So I wonder if a 30-year-old in that particular situation is, is responsible. Well, I, I mean, I'm less, I'm not that interested in fault to begin with. I, I don't think it's that compelling of, a, of an idea for a narrative like this is whose fault it is. I mean, I think what you can look at is his, what his parents- well, you know, but as a myth, but, but as myth, right? Um, the reason that the God has feet of clay is, is a part of it, right? The reason Achilles yeah. is in, the, the, you're, um, you want to understand that's, that is a lot of what the book does. I mean, no, it's, right. uh, we're interested in the roots for sure. And we spent a lot of time on the growth of those roots. And to me, it's Earl and Coltita. And I don't think it's one more than the other. I think she's got the short end of the stick, both for credibility and everything else in terms of her role in all this. But the mother's role in this story to me is just as powerful as the father's role. And we were trying to bring her into the narrative because for so long Earl controlled the narrative. When he was alive, he wrote the narrative and he never wrote her into it. It was always him. You know, the great line on Charlie Rose when he's being, Charlie Rose is interviewing him and, and Charlie's trying to get him to talk about how great his son is and Earl's like, well, I made him that way and Charlie's like, can you give him a little bit of credit? And I think that that, that part of the narrative was always set by him but when you get to his adult years and Tiger is doing the things that he's doing, I mean, to me, I think this really is a question at the end of the day that it's it's like artists have to make is how much are you going to show in your in your television show? How far right. are you going to go? But you just mentioned Charlie, and I could see Armin, and maybe this isn't true. You know, you you've worked with the guy for a long time. If someone wrote an article that not only told the stories, but then talked about what happened when the robe came off and the girls who did it and what positions he favored, would that bother you? Well, look, we weren't the first one to plow this ground. Would by it bother? But would it bother you? You know. Um, it depends on it depends on if you took that one moment in time and said and you made a big deal out of it in a in a People magazine article, then I would have a problem with it. If you wrote 170,000 words, so I understand the pathology of yeah. someone like Charlie Rose before that moment. Um, there's a few other moments that have nothing to do with sex with Charlie. What I found when you're in your own when you're in your car and you're driving the car and you're looking at your uh, replays of your interviews with former heads of state, that's a very interesting moment. Yeah, for as sure. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah, for sure. So I'm looking for those kinds of a moments. Revelatory moments. Yeah. Yes. yes. And that's what this book was built on. And trust me, we had moments, I mean, we had a pile of information as tall as your ceiling. And as I'm sure as you do every week, as you're culling things yeah. out, we did that. And did we make in the tens of thousands of choices? I don't care. Listen, I don't care about the yeah. little mistake. I mean, the, yeah. I'm not. No, but I nobody mean, cares. No, I, I know how hard that is. I, mean, I, mean, I, no, I just mean yeah. judgments that you're making yeah, sure. as to what's going on the page and how it's being framed in the big picture. That's some big boy stuff. And we spent, I can't tell you how many hours talking about tone and texture and making judgments that were painful to the point where this guy never left my life for three years. I mean, right, of course. literally. Of course. And, and because he's real, because he is a person and he has a wife, uh, an ex-wife. Ex-wife and kids. And children. And, um, and he's still a public figure. The, the, you, you can't, it's not like you take lightly 
what you are putting on the page. It's not like it was joyous uh, or there was any pleasure in writing some of these sequences or scenes that are in the book. I mean, there were a lot of times at the end of the day where we would talk on the phone and it was, or, or, or I would go to bed feeling like dark. I mean, this, there was, versus the last chapter, which I loved writing that chapter because each night going to bed, I felt really good because I felt like we were writing something redeeming. And that's what we wanted. And we were afraid for so long that the ending to this book was going to be well, so dark. Oh, sure. I, I wrote three or four endings that I would send to him. You know, one that I can remember very vividly that, that brought back Earl and the unmarked grave and almost had Tiger standing over the unmarked grave in his mind about, boy, I became just like my father. One of and the many not so uh, uh, no, redeeming the un- endings. I mean, the unmarked grave thing from Let's the beginning and then is amazing. Wh- wh- why do you think, because, look, and, and, I, and, and I will say again, I, I do want to say, it's a fascinating, compelling read, and I'm glad that I read it. You guys did a great job. Um, why do you think guys like me care so much about Tiger Woods? I mean, you're not a golf person, but why do you think he means so much to so many people beyond just what an athlete means. When he wins, it unites fathers and sons in a way that almost nothing, my my son and me and my dad would all, my 22-year-old son, I'm 52, my dad's 78. If, the, if Tiger was in contention in a major, we would find a way to all, if not be together, to be talking on the phone for every shot. Why is that the I case? Think we- my, my approach to that question is coming from the perspective of someone who's not a huge golfer, and, right. yet, and I'm one of those guys, too, who can't look away. And I've, and I've met, since this book has come out, I've met a profound number of people who don't care about golf except when he plays, women who don't follow the sport, but they have to watch this guy. They, they, they think they love this guy. And I think part of it is that th- this is part cultural. We are fascinated with fame. We're fascinated with people that we see everywhere, whether it's on TV, on billboards, and commercials. That's that guy. And I think Tiger has been more famous. It's hard to find people in our lifetimes that experienced greater fame than him. Michael Jackson, maybe, Muhammad Ali, but it's hard to point to someone and say, well, that guy was more famous than Tiger Woods. He's, he is so famous, but he also represents a lot of things to us besides great golf. And I think it's, it's almost like uh, the world is right today when Tiger wins. When he's playing on, the, on Sunday and he's in contention, golfers, <laughs> I mean, I've met so many of them working on this book. It's amazing how they feel like, you know, it's like the world has realigned so, for a little while. So I, yeah. I would take it in a slightly different direction in terms of genius. Yes, me too. What's it like to to watch genius? I, I don't I mean, think it has anything to do with fame because I think fame is like Mozart, the dominant thing now in it's our culture. It's Mozart. Yeah. It's Michael Jackson. It's Muhammad Ali. It's um, people in your world where you're watching them act, and you just go, "This is just is not normal." Um, he is to me. Um, he's a genius. He like we likened him to Shakespeare because he comes around once, and you may never see this this combination again not just the physical beauty, the physical strength, the cultural aspect, the social aspect. He changes the game of golf financially. We've watched him in many ways grow up in terms of the Mike Douglas show. That's incredible. The, not just what he did, 
but the way he did it, he came back and won three. The all third of his, when he wins the USM, yeah, when he wins he, the US he amateur comes and comes back against Trip Keeney, right? I mean, right. it's Trip Keeney, Ryan Armour, Steve Scott. It's yes, and it, it's it a crazy thing. Blooded machine like brilliance, and and don't you think it has something to do? It's genius and specialness, but it's also this idea of potential achieved. That yeah, that when watching a young person who had this spark of genius. And then actually, uh, which we all look for, right, in our children, in the, the kid we knew who was a prodigy, they always flame out. Right. And this guy not only didn't flame out for the longest time, but he announced himself as, the his father announced him as the chosen person. Yeah, right. And he then did it and said it, backed it up, and then actually was able to live up to this incredibly impossible idea of the perfect form of who he was. I think you're absolutely right. Is, is that you can, there's a, a, a graveyards littered with child prodigies that never lived up to the expectations placed upon them. Uh, let's just name one, Todd Marinovich. I mean, that is, that is exhibit A, example, Marv, yeah. Mar Marv Marinovich. Um, that article, did you write that piece in SI? No, but that's I, one I, of the, maybe Gary Smith did. Yeah, that's one of the I, great pieces ever in SI. And, and, it, and it's such a cautionary tale. And this is the one, and we're not just talking about with Earl changing the game of golf. We're talking about the ability to impact nations. This is a man who likened his son to Gandhi. I mean, and Buddha and people well, like that. Well, if you look at the world now and you look at, at if, if these things, if Tiger had gotten to 18 at that time, 18 majors, and hadn't derailed in this way, I think he could have been president of the United States. I, I think that that could have very well happened if if all that stuff didn't... If you look at how the... I mean, look at how we pick our presidents. Yeah, well, there is that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The so, thing I'm trying to say, though, I don't disagree with any of what you're saying, but you two guys are golf guys. And I think the way that you're talking is... the Golf is a huge universe. There's people around the world that are in this game the way you two are. I'm not that guy, and I'm telling you that there's also... The reason Tiger is... Going back to your original question... What you guys are saying applies to all people who care about and play golf. But there's a whole other universe of people out there who don't care about that See, game. See, I, I disagree. Who, who care about him? You know, I totally disagree with this, too. I'm because not talking about golf. I'm talking about genius. You know, no, I, right. I am, too. But what I'm saying is, is that there's a lot of people who don't care about the thing you're talking about. But they cannot look away from this guy. I mean, when you're but in a, a lot of that's to do with how hard. Of course, they, they might want to stare at him. It, but but not just stare at him. I'm talking about watch him, care about him, in a way that's different than what you're talking about. The bonding you're talking about with your dad and your grandfather when you watch him play. I'm talking about people who don't feel that, but they feel the connection to watching this guy. Yes. I mean, and I think. But I'm talking about the deep caring, the way that people care about LeBron, for instance. Um, there's always, because right, you can make the argument LeBron's a genius like Tiger is. <laughs> I would never make that argument. I, I think, Why? I think, because I don't think LeBron has, I think Le, what LeBron I mean, has done. For me, it's done, Jordan, but like right, my but son would make LeBron the LeBron argument. just did in the, yeah, but your son didn't see Tiger in his prime. And a shot in the dark at Firestone, where yeah, no, literally you can't even see the pin, and he hits the, the two six feet. The six iron, well, the six out the, iron out of the sand out trap, of sand trap, two two thirteen over right. water, yeah, twelve feet from the pin. No, I my, mean, my son remembers the, all that shit. No he, my son was born in ninety five, so oh, he okay. remembers. So he got the whole. He was born in ninety five, so he and I took the ride together. 
Yeah. We watched it all to, from when Sam was four. We were watching all of it. So well, just for he remembers example, 2000 completely. If, if Jordan Spieth or, or John Rahm or Justin Thomas wins two majors in a single year, he's anointed as the next one, right? right? Tiger won seven out of 11 majors. So, no, I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah, that's who does that. I, I agree. Um, so you put, you're, you're, com you're putting LeBron in the same category. I'm not sure that I yeah. would. I would put Michael, no, I would, for, for, for me in my lifetime, um, I would put like Prince in that category. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, as someone just touched by the ineffable yeah. thing who just right. was floated, whether he was your favorite musician or not. Couldn't take your eyes off. He him. was, you, there was no doubt that he was the most talented human in the world for a period of time. Tiger was like that. And Michael, I saw many, many, many Michael yeah. Jordan games. And that to me was somebody who was doing something, operating at a level that was just different than everybody else. I felt like, no. You know, I just, I don't want to talk about LeBron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but are you guys writing a LeBron book? He's, he's writing. Are it. you writing a LeBron book? <laughs> yes. Oh, my, 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 my wife and my son are obsessed with uh, LeBron's story and his greatness. So that's I'll, good. I told Jeff today, I said, I know you're a nonfiction writer for a living. I have another job. I said, after what we went through for three years, the fact that you can get back on the horse so quickly, I said, I just want to, I just want to light myself on fire. Oh, yes, <laughs> I understand. Can I, why, why am, why did you guys feel like it was important to tell a different version of the events of Tiger getting picked on as a kid? I well, I think it was reporting. I mean, it never really made sense. I, that was kind of me. But, but without it, going back to Tiger, right? Tiger's who well, said we, this we happened to him, right? went back to Tiger. But, and Tiger but, doesn't want to talk to us. And Tiger's never really been quizzed the way I would quiz him in terms of the sequence of events. Did you ask Steiny about it? We, they didn't want to talk to us, Brian. We, we started with them in January of 2016 with an email that just requested the opportunity to sit down with them to discuss the possibility of an interview. What we got in response in an email that was basically a journalism lesson from Glenn Greenspan was before they would even consider talking to us, quote unquote, we had to tell them everybody that we talked to, everything that they said right. to us, and we had to provide them a list of questions. But isn't memory, here's the thing, when I, that, I'd say this is the area in the book, and I'm sure other people have hit you guys with this or asked you this question, but this was the thing I did have the most problem with, right? Having children, having been a child, and studying memory quite a bit. So Tiger remembers this a certain way at a certain time. You know it could have happened two years after or a year before in a different No, school, I don't know. But no, I could, don't. That's how memory works when you're a little child, though. That, who but, has a, especially a traumatic... I'm sorry, let's not start with child, little child. With this a, was... Earl started this, when, not Tiger. This was Earl's But Tiger stepped to it, right? Tiger has said it happened. Yeah. So this is my question. Do you question. remember what you did at five years old? I remember. I have memories. This is what I'm saying, though. I have memories of being Yeah, five. so do I. But, but when a traumatic... So for a moment, assume it happened. Just for this moment, assume it happened. When a traumatic thing like that happens and the memories sink in... The details change. It, you can look at it. People remember things. I mean, witnesses, you're a lawyer. I am also. Uh, I mean, I never practiced, but I graduated law school. You know, witnesses change their memory of events. Something could have happened, and a guy could be wearing a red shirt, and suddenly it happened under a red sign. I mean, that we can look okay. at thousands Honor, of pages. May I say one stuff? thing yeah. here? Is that you're right. Was it sometime during his first year of kindergarten? Was it a Tuesday? Or was it a Thursday? No. In the telling of the story, it's the first day of kindergarten. 
the first day. I would just say it could be the first day of second. It could have been the first day of second grade. Well, it was the first day of, of, of first grade when, when Earl finally got around to telling it the second time. But nobody who was at that school during that period of time from the principal to the first grade teacher to the kindergarten teacher, who I interviewed all three of those, except I didn't interview the, the principal because he's now dead. But the the vast majority of the people that but are people talking who about would have interest in I, I would say this is the one thing that feels to me like as two white guys telling this story blatant you know um just saying this act of racism didn't happen didn't say that likely didn't happen was was likely i mean the book lands on, if you read the book the, the I, book yeah, I'm lands on that. yeah but you know you guys are saying i mean do you think the book doesn't say we don't think this happened no it says that that didn't trouble you guys at all? No, because it's it's a narrative that, that has been propagated by Earl Woods for a very specific reason, which was to create a racial narrative in Tiger's life, that he had to overcome some sort of racial incident as part of the family narrative. Earl interjected this into the narrative at a, in what, 1993, I think it was the first time that it surfaced in a story in the, and trust me, we tracked it like a GPS system as it was changed from one telling to another. I found that to be interesting. And I went to that school. There's, and, and I watched and looked at that playground. Yeah. I saw the street, I counted the lanes that he had to cross. We went as far as to, to reach out to the superintendent of schools, because Earl, in his telling, said that there had been a, a report made about that incident. There was no report, at least according to the superintendent of schools in the Savannah School District now. So when you take all those pieces and you place them together, it-, it Because it, you don't think it was Young Tiger's story. That's why. So no, I'm trying to understand this. You don't think it was Young Tiger's story. It was old Earl's story. You don't think it was Young Tiger's story. No, I think it was Young Earl. Tiger went along with it because it was part of what Earl... But it's not a memory you believe Tiger has or no, Tiger independently believe... would have stayed. I, Fast. That's fascinating to me. I think two things, too, is, you know, what would you do if you were writing someone's biography and there's a, a seminal moment in their life and this is a seminal moment and you do all your research and you interview as many people as you can and at the end of the day the evidence in front of you says I don't think this happened and you're the only one who has all that and now it's up to you should I leave it out because if I leave it out no one's gonna know the difference or do I put it in and if I put it in someone's gonna ask me what you just asked us what would you do and that's, I, I definitely wouldn't have put that in the book. No chance I'd have put that in the book. Well, it's that's I, a, I have no chance. No chance I'd have put that in the book because I, I don't think you know. I don't think you can know without talking to Tiger Woods. But I don't you, think if, you can know. When I interviewed Jimmy Connors, well, wait a and second, Tiger Woods is going to say exactly let, what Tiger Woods has always said. He's told that story. He told it to Barbara Walters. He's I would take me, a young. Me, I guess I would take a young black man at his word that racial shit happened to him when he was a kid in school, and I would believe almost any story about that, um, save Tawana Brawley. But I would believe pretty see, much. I never any, saw it as, as a black and white incident. I saw it as a as did it happen or not incident, and because. There's but so it, but much at its foundation, it is a black. But as Tiger a Woods. foundational story, 
it is a story that stands in for for me. It's a story that stands in for the absolute racism that that kid dealt with on golf courses in his life and in, in life. But if the story... It's, see, I think that's two different things. I think he absolutely experienced racism on the golf course, whether he experienced which racism on the... you guys give very little... You guys don't give a lot of run to the racism that... I would say, for me, the other answer to the question is Tiger Woods changed the world. The other answer to, my, to the question of why people care isn't because he's famous. It's because that kid changed the world by swinging that golf club. Yeah. And he made racists change the way they thought about the world. He made um, segregate one of the last bastions of segregation integrated. So for me, I wouldn't fuck with the, the, the line of race, especially because I didn't read the 150 pages about the discrimination that he faced or the difficulties he faced or Lee Elder or any of the stuff that was about Tiger going into a world and saying, I'm not playing by those old rules. And so for me, that's why. If you were going to tell that whole story, then absolutely. I think you but buy Tiger in. never talked about it, Brian. He, he ran away from the racial narrative in golf for the, for, the large, for the large part of his life. And we do make reference to the fact. You make reference. No, no, yeah. you do. You tell yeah. the story of him getting kicked off the range. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But, but you know what I mean? Like, so on the other hand, though, Armin, you know the history of racism in golf. Absolutely. In our, and I, you know, I walked the grounds at Augusta this year, and it's the greatest place in the world on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a symptom of like everything wrong in America. But and, you, you, but you talk about Augusta. I mean, yeah. we have, we yeah. have the, the, the cooks and the waitresses yes, and the service staff and that's great. on the balcony yeah, cheering great. them. I, mean, I love that moment. There's a moment there. That's a spectacular there. moment right. in the book. But if your standard, if your standard, if we use the standard that you just used, you can't write what you don't know. Well, gosh, if I'm going to really push that statement to its edge, there's a lot of stuff that's going to come out of this book. Well, a lot of stuff that's going to come out of this book because you could say, well, do you really know to that degree? Well, you don't really know I, whether Cotilda said the thing about Dean at a tiger or not. I, I think we know as much about that incident on the playground as we know about a lot of other things that we wrote in the book. And so you, you've got to make a decision as to whether, as a biographer, someone who's reading this who may not know nearly as much about his life as you do, is this something they should know? Is this a significant thing that this seminal moment that Earl has talked about for 15 years yeah. may not have actually happened? Is that interesting enough to put in there? And, you know, we're not the only ones who thought that it was. I mean, it obviously goes through an editorial process where other people are weighing in on it. I have it. great respect for Jonathan Carr, and, too. I know I'm in a there great, was a, great, yeah. great respect for Jonathan. I mean, and, and Jovi Ferrari Adler, who's yeah, our, no, our editor. I, so I'm not, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not, I think it's a fascinating debate. It's a great conversation. Yeah. In terms of whether that should or shouldn't go in there, because this is exactly what we did. And if you had been the third writer, it would have been yeah. an even more spirited no, discussion no, on look, this I, one. I, look, I was going to say, you know, Dave and I made a documentary about Jimmy Connors, and I had a thesis going in that Jimmy was happy to be an asshole. But I had to get Jimmy to say it to me. Mm -hmm. I had to find a way to get Jimmy's trust and work with Jimmy and whatever and then get him to look me in the eye and say I was an asshole but I was a happy but asshole. But you got Jimmy to sit in the chair. Yeah, well that's part of the I mean that's part well, of the game. What do you think we tried to do? Right, but I I'm mean, saying that he wasn't yeah. going to sit and what we had to do yes. was to go through 350 press conferences like I was a prospector of course. mining words <laughs> of course. That, or phrases that he used, you know, like uh, the one thing we said that that's the woods way, yeah. you sure. know. You know how when I saw that I thought I had found the Rosetta Stone because it was... And he said it once. He said it once. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and, I, and I would say, I, I guess the difference is, and it's not even a difference, Mike, it's really a question because I'm fascinated by this all, 
is, you know, I would understand it for a politician, for someone who, whose decisions affect the world. I feel, you know, as your balancing act stuff uh, that we learn in law school, for me, when someone is a decision maker and is going to affect the world, I think it brings in a lot more of that stuff than when somebody's yeah, I would argue an athlete. he was a decision maker. And you can't go say he changes the world of golf racially. He did change the by, whole, I mean, he changed by, the world. Without saying everything that Tiger Woods did, <clears throat> yeah. the Accenture ads, the Nike ads, yeah. the American Express sure. ads, they yeah. all told a story. I loved all that stuff in the book. I loved it. The, the ad campaign. I mean, is I will Jim say, Wild a this character is if, amazing. What? I mean, the when you read <laughs> the story and of how um, and Doug Lyman told me. Doug Lyman has told me the story of how he came up with that. The golf club. saw it, Tiger hitting the ball up in the air, and then it's whacking. He's told it to me in, in person. It's amazing, and I love that you guys got that. And you got. I mean, I, I will say that that um, the stuff about the business of Tiger Woods is. Unbelievable! I could talk to you guys for two more hours <laughs> about the fact that uh, the, the family lawyer who insulted Earl because he got drunk and then got fired and the way that those guys, the way that they were um, Corleone-like in drawing lines of loyalty and Tiger had to play a lot of the, you know, never Fredo, but Tiger had to be Michael and he had to be Sonny at times and all that stuff is in incredible and how smart Tiger is. You do get the fact that this is uh, an incredibly so high IQ person and also, um, you know, arguably the greatest golfer who, who, who ever lived. Either the greatest or the second greatest. Uh, since you're not into golf, Jack Nicholas would be the other guy, Jack. Just so. <laughs> is that his name, Jack? <laughs> yeah. The golden bear. I that guy. He'd yeah. be the other guy in the, in the conversation. But listen, if you want to understand about biography, look, these are great journalistic questions. And especially in this, in this I will say this. Um, in this age of people uh, wanting to cast aspersions on journalists, I think these are two people you can hear in this conversation who are incredibly serious about all the information, about getting the story to the best they could, about backing it up, about getting witnesses, and then making a really hard journalistic decision. And even as I'm challenging it, uh, I hope if you're listening, you can hear that these are two people who considered the ramifications of everything that they did, that they did before they did it and who had real justification I may disagree, and I do in spots, but I think these are great journalists who did everything they could to get it right by their own standards. So, Jeff and Armin, thanks for being here and talking about this. Thank you. And Thank people you. can go and uh, should go and buy your book and, and read it. And then this week they should cheer Tiger on in the U.S. Open because I know I will be by my television cheering him on. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks.